Well, good morning. Thank you, uh, Jacob, for reading that text over many times this week because you sung many of the scenes from Matthew chapter 8. You know, uh, I want to thank all the people here this morning who minister with our children in Awana. They had their wrap-up event this week, and uh, I got to come in, and I, I always get to judge the cars. Parents suggesting they slip me a five or something, you know, to judge their kid's car. I, a couple people talked about it, but they never did it. So anyways, it's really fun to just see children at Awana. And you know, uh, this week has been a wonderful week of just watching the body of Christ be the body of Christ. So many things happen behind the scenes that are so beautiful. On uh, Saturday morning, the Mexico team left, and they circled, and they prayed before they went. And uh, one young man boldly stood up and, and prayed, and wow, last time I saw that kid, he was like this tall, and now he's this tall, and he's praying boldly in the presence of adults. That was so encouraging for me to watch. Well, friends, we want to look at God's Word this morning, Matthew's Gospel, and there are six scenes in there, or six stories that reveal so much about Jesus himself. And so we want to look at those one at a time this morning. But I thought before we did, I'd like to show you some pictures that help, will help us, I think, visualize the text before us this morning. Now, this is a, the Sea of Galilee. They call it the sea, but really it's a lake. This is in Israel, of course. Uh, the autos had the privilege of being there this uh, last couple weeks, and they just had a terrific time. And anyways, in this map here, you can see there, there's a couple cities up there in the left-hand corner in the north, Capernaum and Gennesaret. Somewhere between there, picture a mountain where Jesus was standing, teaching that large, large crowd. This is where scene one takes place in today's passage. Scene two and scene three and scene four take place in a little town called Capernaum. And uh, we're going to really get into that town today. Boy, I would have loved to have been back there when these events were taking place. Anyway, scene five takes place on the lake, somewhere on the lake. And this lake, by the way, is 636 feet below sea level which is really interesting. And the river that leads away from it is the Jordan River, which runs into the Dead Sea, which is 1,100 feet below sea level. And of course, it goes nowhere from there. And in fact, that lake is, or Dead Sea, is getting lower and lower and lower because uh, they're farming along the Jordan River, and they're draining a lot of water out there to grow crops in both Jordan and Israel today. Now, to the right here, there's a series of mountains. And in the spring and the fall, east winds come, and they come over the mountains. They're about 2,600 feet, and they, it creates a downdraft that comes upon the lake, which in turn causes, what, up to seven-foot waves on a relatively small lake. And as we'll see today, that'll be a factor in scene number five. The next slide here is a picture of a synagogue. And now we're back in the little city of Capernaum. And this uh, synagogue, I, you know, th these are so beautiful. These are like 2,000 or more years old. This one was actually built, Luke's Gospel says, by the centurion, yes, by the Roman centurion, 
And Luke's gospel tells us that. He obviously loved the Jewish nation. And then the next slide here is, is the pictures of the ruins of Peter and Andrew's house. Now, over the years, there's been churches built on this. And, uh, but they re archaeologists really feel that the underneath ruins that you're looking at were actually the, the foundations of Peter and Andrew's house, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from that synagogue we looked at. So with that as an introduction, let me uh, ask you to open your hearts today as I read God's word. Scene number one. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Well, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded, yes, in the book of Leviticus, as a testimony to them. Now this passage begins by telling us that a large crowd had followed Jesus down the mountainside. Friends, these people were so impressed by what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. And we had lots of discussions this week, like five, six, and seven contained the Sermon on the Mount, but likely Jesus said a lot more than that as well. But that's what we have. We have a great sermon there, chapters 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And people were so amazed at what Jesus said because he taught in a way that was so different from other teachers at that time. He gave people a really great understanding of the Old Testament laws and values. And now, in chapter 8... The people are going to be amazed again, but not so much by what Jesus is going to say, but what, what, by, by what Jesus is in fact going to do. So let's take a closer look. Verse 2. Yes, a man with leprosy kneels before Jesus and says to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Friends, we need to understand a little bit about this man. Our NIV says he had leprosy. It could mean some other form of skin disease as well. And friends, according to the Old Testament, these people were forced to live outside their communities. They were only very lonely people. Furthermore, they were required to tear their clothes and cover their faces. And in addition, when they moved about the community, if they did at all, they were to say the words, unclean, unclean, unclean. Could you imagine having to walk around saying that about yourself? Unclean, unclean. To say the very least, these people with skin diseases lived a horrible existence. But that didn't keep Jesus from reaching out and touching him and saying, yes, I am willing, be clean. And yes, the man was miraculously healed, for Jesus has authority over all forms of illness and disease. And friends, if you go on to read the rest of the Gospels, you see this theme over and over again. Jesus has authority over illness and disease. 
As we notice in this story, Jesus told the man, don't tell anyone else. But you know, when we read Mark's gospel, we discover that he went about telling everyone. He couldn't help himself. He must have been so excited. Now he could be part of a community. Well, he told absolutely everyone. (laughs) But the question should be asked, why would Jesus tell him not to tell anyone? Could it be that Jesus didn't want to be known as a miracle worker? He didn't want people to force him forward and say, now go use this power in Jerusalem and overthrow the leaders there. Restore the kingdom to us. You see, Jesus didn't come to do that. His messiahship was going to look very much different. Very early on in Matthew's gospel, which we should understand, by the way, as a discipleship manual, it is very clearly stated that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And then a little later on in Matthew Gospel, we read these verses, 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Christ's ultimate mission. And he finished that work, friends, at the, near the end of his ministry on a Roman cross. Jesus, however, did tell the man, you can tell someone, I want you to go and see a priest and yes, offer up a sacrifice as described in the book of Leviticus. And you have to think, Jesus was trying to reach out to the religious community that were really feeling at odds with Jesus. They were jealous of his abilities. They were jealous of his popularity. But Jesus wanted the priests to realize and wrestle with the fact that Jesus had a healing ministry. And that was talked about in the Old Testament. This is what people should be looking for in the Messiah. That is something that he would also do. Friends, in this story, we are being taught, yes, that Jesus has authority over disease, but as well, by example, I believe Jesus is also teaching us to look out for the marginalized people of our world. Brothers and sisters, I think if I asked each and every one of you this morning, you'd be able to tell me of someone who is marginalized that you know. They're they're not invited to the gatherings. Not too many people seek them out to talk to them or have coffee with them. We all know those type of people. And to this day, I still remember my grade one class and a little girl by the name of Joan who sat to my right three rows over who was one of those marginalized little girls. And you know, I I think I remember some people making fun of her. And that bothers me to this day. Not because I teased her or said anything, but I was big enough in that day in grade one to just go over and say, don't do that. You can't treat Joan that way. You know, if I could have a few moments in life, I'd like to have that one over. Friends, but the reality is that we all know someone that we can reach out to. And I think by example, Jesus is showing us to reach out to the marginalized. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul himself, be willing to associate with people of low position. Scene number two. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. 
For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Just go. Let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. This little scene from the life of Christ introduces us to a Roman centurion. And for those of you who read your Bible a fair bit, you'll understand that Roman centurions often appear in the New Testament and in a very positive light which reminds us the gospel is starting to make inroads beyond Israel, back and in, right into the Roman Empire. When these people would go back, they would also tell people about Jesus. This particular uh, Roman centurion apparently loved the Jewish people. We're told that in Luke's gospel. And in fact, the synagogue we saw was built under his direction. Furthermore, the passage before us informs that he was a man who had come to understand something about the greatness of Jesus. I, I think maybe sometimes we can just be a little too familiar with Jesus in the sense of not respecting just how awesome he is. Because do you see how he's, what he said to Jesus? Lord, I don't even deserve to have you come under my house or under my roof. Somewhere along the way, it must have been revealed to his heart and mind that Jesus was someone very, very special. But you know, more importantly, the centurion is praised by Jesus himself because of his faith. Specifically, he believed that Jesus could heal his servant without even coming and seeing him. He believed that Jesus just needed to say the word. And so Jesus says of him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What a wonderful, wonderful commendation. And may it be said of us too, that as we move through life, our faith becomes greater and greater. You know, I think at very early on in church, we encourage children and, or anyone who's just new to the faith to trust in Jesus for your eternal destiny. But I think, friends, God wants to stretch our faith beyond that. So he's stretching our faith in regards to our marriages, in, to, in regards to our relationships, in, in regards to what we believe that he can actually do in our lives today. He really does want to grow our faith, and we're going to see that in another story here this morning. But, you know, this story here clearly teaches us that the kingdom of God is available to all. Yes, to all who embrace Christ. And there's also a sobering warning in this passage here that the subjects of the kingdom, who I understand to be the nation of Israel, they must as well place their faith in Christ, turn from their sins if they want to be included in the kingdom of God and this great end-time banquet. Yes, the kingdom of God is available to all who place their faith in Christ. 
And I think you would agree with me this morning that the most important thing that a person could ever do is to embrace Jesus as their Savior. It's life's ultimate, ultimate decision. You know, in John's Gospel, John has two verses back to back that I think really illustrate the fact that Jesus must be responded to. Where it says this, he, speaking of Jesus, he came to that which was his own, that is the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him, at least not everyone. Yet to all, even Roman centurions, who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. A total gift of grace. May it be said of each and every one here this morning that you have embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you're his child, that you're his kid. Ever notice how Nathan Basford, our missionary, that Pakistan speaks of himself? He usually signs his letters, his kid, his kid. Well, the next scene. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. And then I love this verse. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what he spoken through the prophet Isaiah, who wrote in, what, 700 years previous? Yes, he will take up our infirmities and bore our diseases. The scene takes place at Peter's home, or should I say Peter and Andrew's home. They must have both inherited the home. And it's kind of interesting because remember Jesus said to them one day, hey, come follow me. They left their nets and they followed him. Well, they still had property. And their property was in this little sid, Capernaum. And you have to wonder, had they leased their boats out? Because at the end of John's gospel, they're back fishing. Remember, Jesus appeared to them after he was resurrected, and then he called them to a lifelong ministry. Anyways, when Jesus arrived at their home in this little, little town, Peter's mother-in-law was lying in bed with some sort of fever. Matthew records for us that Jesus simply touched her hand and she was instantly healed. And in fact, she felt so good, she began to wait on them, which I would assume she began cooking a meal. So then, and this is so wonderful, later that day, when evening came, word must have got out that Jesus was in this little town and people started bringing those with all sorts of illnesses and people who were possessed by evil spirits, and Jesus healed the sick and drove the evil spirits out of people. And then Matthew concludes by saying, this had to happen. One of the great themes in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is fulfilling everything that was spoken about him in the old. And this is one of the great things that he, he, would, have a fifth, he would have a healing ministry and it was being fulfilled right there at that moment. Could you imagine what it would have been like to be in the city that night? For a moment, think of someone you know who's suffering. Someone who's got an illness. And you brought them. And you brought them to that town that night. And they were all healed. 
Do you think anyone went to bed that night? Wouldn't you stay up all night just keep the coffee coming, keep the tea or whatever coming, and to celebrate what God had done through his son Christ that night. It would have been an incredible moment to be there. Friends, I really think that such stories as this are put in our Bible at least as a foretaste of all that is going to come in the future. Because as we read our New Testaments, it becomes very clear that if you have embraced Christ, you're in for a resurrection body, one that functions perfectly all the time. The words that Paul uses to describe our new bodies are glorious, powerful, and imperishable. Furthermore, we're promised this body in a whole new place where there is no more death or mourning or any pain, no more tears, for the old order of things is going to be put away. And friends, that's really what Christian hope is all about. And we're to live with that hope right now, knowing that everything else is really quite temporary around us. The best is yet to come. But I want to say this, and I want to say it cautiously, because I know something about asking for things that I don't get. In the meantime, let's ask God to do great things. Great things in our midst, in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who has authority over disease and illness. Scene number four. When the crowd saw, or when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Well, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests. Yes, they have home. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then another disciple came to him and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then Jesus says to him, and it seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You know, despite having a large crowd around him, you think, well, there's people here. Let's just stay here and keep doing ministry in this little town. But as we read other Gospels, it becomes very clear that Jesus wanted to make sure that he got through the entire region because he feels everyone should have an invitation to be part of the kingdom of God. No one should be excluded. But before he had a chance to get in the boat, a teacher of the law, yes, a religious person, came to him and says, Jesus, look it, I will follow you wherever you go. And you have to wonder, was this teacher on that mountain when Jesus gave that great sermon? And this guy realized, now here's a teacher I'd like to sign up under. And we know that people did that in those days because you remember the Apostle Paul? He chose this great and famous teacher by the name of Gamaliel. His response, however, was quite interesting. Foxes have holes or dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. In other words, do you know what you're asking for? You may have enjoyed that last sermon, but I don't have a, an address. I'm an itinerant preacher, Jesus was saying to him. I don't know where I'm going to be even sleeping tonight. There will be a real, real cost if you're going to follow me. And then in the next verse, another disciple says to Jesus, Lord, let me first bury my father, and then I'm going to follow you, right? 
Well, Jesus says these words, and they seem harsh at first. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Friends, we need to make it be very clear here. Jesus is not saying that you should disrespect your mom and your dad. Because when we get to Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is going to make it very clear, very, very clear that we are to honor mom and dad. In fact, he chastises the Pharisees for finding a way around caring for mom and dad. So what's he getting at here? You know, a lot of people think that this man's father hadn't died yet. And so this guy's just making excuses. But we can't be certain of that. But one thing we can be sure of is that Jesus really does call for total commitment. In all three Gospels, Synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels, we hear Jesus saying this, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Wow. Friends, that's a great commitment. That's a great, great, great commitment. Brothers and sisters, in this passage before us, Jesus is revealed as a person who can call you to follow him, even if it's going to cost you everything. You know, furthermore, friends, as we read the Gospels, he he often walks up to people and just says, follow me, and they do. There must be something so awesome about his presence that you can't say no. (laughs) And you know, the reality is, is that he's still calling people to follow him today. He's still calling. And you guys can look back and you can remember the moment that you began to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's like you could hear him personally saying, follow me. Friends, in the words of Joseph Stoll, who wrote a wonderful book on following Jesus, he says this, following is the beginning and the end of what it means to be a Christian. We're not asked simply to believe in him and then we can leave him on the shelf. <laughs> no, we're to believe in him as our Lord and our Savior and then live it out, a life of following him. Stowell also says this, and this is a beautiful quote, life is like a galaxy. There's always something at the center that defines and directs everything else that moves around it. As the sun, S-U-N, is to the solar system, so the sun, S-O-N, should be to our existence. Everywhere we go, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Whatever we do, do it in his name. He is the center of our existence. He defines who we are. He gives us our identity. He gives us our purpose. And one day, by grace, he's going to reward us. Scene five. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, ye of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You know, verse 424 tells us that they were all surprised by the change in weather pattern. Yes, this phenomenon of what the east wind coming over the mountains, going down the side, 
creating a wind draft that ultimately created these life-threatening waves. And yes, in the midst of it, can't you just picture Jesus sleeping? <laughs> the disciples, however, they, they were fearing for their life. And so they called out to Jesus to save him. Friends, these guys had a measure of faith. They knew they could turn to Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus wanted them to grow in their understanding of who he was. So we rebuked them. Oh, you of little faith. I think he wanted to say to them, as he said to the centurion, oh, you of great faith. <laughs> but not that day. And then he rebuked the wind and the waves. And you know, based on Mark's gospel, we even know what he said. He said, quiet, be still. And immediately, everything becomes calm. Now, in response to all this, the disciples asked a really, really good question. And the question is simply, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And friends, because we have the word of God now, we have a New Testament we know what the answer to that question is. Jesus is no mere man. He's Emmanuel, as we've learned about in beginning chapters of Matthew. He's Emmanuel, which means God with us, God in the flesh. He therefore does what God does. In the Old Testament, God was known as the master of the storms, master of the waves, and so is Jesus. Yes, Jesus is far greater than the disciples thought him to be. You know, in response to this passage, uh, a fellow by the name Michael, a guy by the name of Michael Williams Wilkins says this, and this was a real challenge to me. Friends, we can never know Jesus well enough. We need to keep pursuing knowledge of him. And here's what he says. And he is far more than what we have often understood as well. It is a challenge for all of us to look clearly at Jesus as the divine human Messiah, to allow him to amaze us, and even beyond amazement to move us to follow him as his true disciple. And now the final scene. When he arrived at the other side, in the region of the Gadarenes, that's the southeast corner of the lake, a Gentile area, by the way, and there's good evidence that it's a Gentile era because they're, they're raising pigs there, and that's something that Jewish people were forbidden to do. Anyways, when they were in that region, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from then, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out into the, and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went to, into the town, and the town was probably Gerasa, a little town on the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And they reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This passage tells us of a confrontation Jesus and his disciples had with two demon-possessed men. 
Yes, in the region of the Gadarenes. The demons living within these tormented men knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And isn't it interesting in our Bibles that those with demon possession recognize Jesus when he's near? I think they have a healthy, well, they don't have enough respect for Jesus, but they know who he is. And they also knew that one day they were going to be judged. So they asked Jesus, have you come here to torment us before, you know, basically judgment day? And Jesus never answered their question. But he did grant them their request that if he was going to drive them out of these men, that he would send them into the herd of pigs that was nearby. And Mark's gospel tells us it was a herd of 2,000 pigs. So that is exactly what Jesus did. He sent the demons into the pigs, which resulted in the pigs running down to the waterside and drowning. When those attending the pigs told the local townspeople what had happened, they all asked Jesus, would you leave this region? Now think about the de details here. Even though these two violent, tormented men were now in their right mind, delivered from evil, no longer a danger to anyone. Despite that happening, they wanted Jesus to leave. If Jesus could do that, wouldn't you want him to stay around? Obviously, to this group of people, they valued the pigs more than these two tormented men. In this story, and as well along with the story we found in verse 16, we are reminded that Jesus has authority over evil. And I would also suggest to you that this story is also a foretaste of what is coming down in the future when Jesus returns. Because what the New Testament makes abundantly clear in many places is that Jesus will bring evil to end once and for all. And shouldn't that encourage each and every one of us this morning? I know there's so much good going on around us, but isn't there far too much evil? I think the events of this week, once again, just so discouraged us. Evil is such an awful, awful thing. But one day, Jesus will bring it to an end. But you know, by way of application today, May I suggest that we all ask Jesus to deliver us, now to quote First Peter, deliver us from the evil desires that wage war against our souls. We, we all know that we're in a battle between good and evil. Why not ask Jesus to deliver us? Yes, Lord Jesus, root out of us all that is not in keeping with your magnificent, magnificent character. I must conclude. The six stories or six scenes from Matthew chapter 8 have much to teach us about how to live as a disciple today. By example, we're taught, friends, to reach out to the marginalized, just like Jesus did. Chapter 8 also teaches us to place our faith in Christ. And then, friends, and I think this is probably applicable to all of us, and then to be open to have God increase our faith so that we'll live confidently in all circumstances. 
Friends, this passage also teaches us to understand that Jesus is a person of great authority. He has authority over things like illness and evil and weather and even ourselves, which I really believe should cause us to ask for great things in his name. And finally, Matthew 8 most certainly teaches us that Jesus calls us to himself, that we would align our lives under his loving leadership. Friends, this morning I just want to close with a a couple more quotes from the pen of Joseph Stoll. No one, no one who has authentically followed Jesus without compromise has become disillusioned or found his ways to be disappointing. We are built to follow the one in whose image we were created. You remember what Colossians made very clear? We were created by him and for him. So we need to live our life under his loving leadership and with him, in fellowship with him. By the very definition of following, we are called to a deepening intimacy with Christ. For followers, Christianity is a relationship, an adventure, a passionate pursuit of Christ. And finally, and I think you guys know this to be true, as I listen to you, I hear stories about you walking with the living Christ, and you're telling me how he's affecting you, how he's changing you, how he's encouraging you. Friends, when we follow him, nothing is safe from his reforming touch. He is committed to reforming our conduct and our character. And in this line, little else matters to him. Who we are so matters to Jesus. Amen.